Hello and welcome to another episode of Brave UX. I'm Brendan Jarvis, Managing Founder of The Space In Between, the home of New Zealand's only specialist evaluative UX research practice and world-class UX lab, enabling brave teams across the globe to de-risk product design and equally brave leaders to shape and scale design culture. Here on Brave UX, though, it's my job to help you to put the pieces of the product puzzle together. I do that by unpacking the stories, learnings, and expert advice of world class UX design and product management professionals. My guest today is Michaela Mora. Michaela is the founder and president of Relevant Insights, a full service market and UX research firm that's on a mission to help companies make profitable business decisions based on outstanding research insights. Prior to founding Relevant Insights in 2007, Michaela was the market research director for Blockbuster Online, where she was responsible for both the qualitative and quantitative consumer and UX research practices, fielding more than 60 in-house projects and delivering stellar business results. Michaela also invested time at Match.com, where she was a market research manager responsible for mixed methods research and managing a team of analysts. An extremely effective researcher, Michaela's professional practice is underpinned by not one, but three master's degrees, including a master's in psychology from the University of Havana, a master's in marketing, advertising and public relations from Stockholm University in Sweden, and a master's in market research from the University of Texas at Arlington. Michaela is also a founding member of the Multicultural Insights Collective, a partnership of veteran researchers from different racial, generational and geographic backgrounds who collaborate on large-scale multicultural research initiatives. Fresh from her talk at Rosenfeld Media's Advancing Research 2022 conference, where she spoke about advanced concept testing approaches, Michaela is now here with me on Brave UX today. Michaela, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for that presentation and for that wonderful way of saying my name. (laughs) <laughs> I do appreciate that. And people won't hear this on the live recording, but it did take some practice. So thank you for bearing with me, Michelle. I really do appreciate it. Now, you're someone who's from a country which has a rich and colorful history. And I was really curious as someone who's never been to Cuba, what was it like growing up in Cuba? You know, what stands out for you when you reflect back on your time that you spent there? Well, I grew up in the 60s there and that was just I mean the revolution came in 1959 I actually I have to say I actually I'm 50% Cuban I was born in the former Czechoslovakia and my father is Cuban my mom is Czech and I was sent there that was my first trip as an immigrant (laughs) it was sent there uh, when I was about three to live with my grandparents so I grew up in a time where Revolution was full force, and there was a lot of hope. So my generation is the re- the generation of hope, and we believed that we could do anything. That we were the best country in the world, of course. And education was really the push for all of us. There was no question that we all were going to go to college. We we're all going to be able to be professionals. And it, there was a an effort, concerted effort, to lift particularly women and blacks, because before 59, the revolution, I mean, Cuba was really a lot of poverty, but there was a lot of segregation and racism, and women were 
considered second-class citizens, like in many other countries. And so they either were wives or servants or sex workers. And so there was a really push for integrating women to give them opportunities, created a place where you can leave your kids and then go to work. And a lot of the education was really, it was a big campaign for, against analphabetism. So a lot of people didn't know how, how to write and read. And so that was the sense that I always have from that time. There was a lot of school and education. That's why education always has been a, such a driver for me in a way of, of becoming independent, particularly for, uh, as a woman, I am mixed race, so there's always I always face racism. People who are mixed race is kind of the weird limbo. You you're not too black, you're not too white, you're kind of in the middle, and you know you have to really stand out in in different ways. And so for me, always was a way of advancing myself. I know economic dependency of someone, particularly for women, usually means lack of freedom. And that was instilled in our generation. So we grew up like strong feminist <laughs> culture, just to education, women's rights, being independent. That was part of what I kind of remember. Of course, in Cuba has a rich history. There is um, a lot of humor, a lot of music, but also the community is very close to the family that you have. And um, But there always a lot of hard times because... The you know Cuba, Cuba was never a country that has a lot of resources, and so it was uh, never been like a rich country, and so that has all the potential. That's why probably the government tried to lift the country based on education, so they have a, this big program for developing the medical field. So Cuba became it still is the biggest exporter of doctors, particularly for for poor countries, just to create intellectual capital, essentially. So that's the that's the main thing that I, I have. It has a lot of other things, but that's the thing that I, I brought with me and still with me today. And that love of education and that, I suppose, the strong installation of feminism and you can, you can do this is really something that looking at your history, in particular your education and education background is something that came through loud and clear for me. You did very briefly, though, just mention their family. And I just did just want to touch briefly on family because you've spoken about your father in the past. What influence did he have on how you've gone on to approach life since you left Cuba? Oh boy, my father, he is, has always been a, a good example. We have a very contentious relationship, I would say, uh, but at the same time, he's always was my role model. I, want to be like, I wanted to be like him. He's uh, also a well-educated man. He, he's an interpreter. He, he has a lot of facilities for languages, so he speaks French, he speaks Czech, and he always worked in that area. So for a long time, I wanted to be just also that, you know, a language specialist and an interpreter. But the, the most important thing about him, he's very, he's very hard worker. He's a, he's a hardworking person and also very perseverant. And whatever you do, you do it looking for the maximum excellence. It's a little perfectionistic, which is sometimes, you know, it's not very healthy. <laughs> <laughs> you got to keep an eye on it. Yeah, 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 you have to kind of keep it okay. Like the, the cleaning, so you have to have this to be clean, you organize yourself. Because nobody's coming. Why do you have to clean that much? <laughs> my husband is the one. 
<laughs> now we're talking. You and I are on the same page. I feel my my wife is the equivalent of your husband in that conversation. Yeah, <laughs> is and uh, it, because he's very prop. He's very proper. He always likes to be well dressed, despite all the mm-hmm. you know difficulties in Cuba to find things. But he really likes to be. Uh, you know, in, in good shape, and he's he's seventy eight now, and he practiced Tai Chi. He's very uh, spiritual, and we have very deep philosophical conversations. So he's he's kind of intellectual power for me too. So whenever I feel like I don't have an answer for things, just talking to him always helps me to get, gain perspective on things. And so that he's always been kind of my support in spiritual and, and an example of how to live and, and work. And I think I get a lot of energy because he also came from, from very difficult uh, circumstances and just the hard work and the perseverance and, and trying to be excellent at whatever he does. Uh, it really, you stand out that way and education always been for him a way of coming up in the world. Sounds like he had that fire, that, that passion and that love of learning, which is something that is, I suppose it's a light that he's passed on to you. And I've heard you describe yourself in the past as a, a book hoarder. And, <laughs> and those are your own words. Yes. And clearly, which which I'm looking forward to coming to uh, soon about your education, it's clearly something that you've, you have a deep value for and appreciation of. Were there many books in your household when you were growing up? Oh boy, there were no books, but the, the library was always there. So I remember when mm. I was uh, in the in the town where I grew up, I I, I ended up re- almost reading all the books in the youth section, and then I moved towards in the younger adults. And then at one point, I was reading philosophies. Like this is just ridiculous because there was not a lot to read. It was, I mean, there were uh, with embargo in Cuba, there were scarcity of everything, including books. But and one thing that I remember clearly that really marked me was when I started reading, we didn't have a dictionary. So a lot, a lot of big words. I didn't know where to to find the words. So I would go to my grandma and say, what does this word mean? She said, just look in the dictionary. So we have a little tiny dictionary like this. <laughs> never, never ever had the words that I wanted to find. Oh boy. And I really got obsessed with dictionaries. So now I have a collection. I have dictionaries in French, in Swedish, in Spanish, and I love dictionaries. And I, I remember trying to, I read a lot. I don't know a lot of the grammar rules in Spanish, but I don't make me typos. And I think it has to do with the fact that I read a lot and in trying to figure out the, the understanding of the meaning of the worlds in the context you were reading. And so I still, I love the big words. And when I went to Sweden, and lived there and started learning Swedish from scratch. And they were telling me that I was, I was, I tried to, of course, you come with that identity, you know, your language and the culture. And in any language, in any language, there are different levels, levels of more formal to more colloquial language. And I used, in Spanish, there is some value at attributed to, you know, knowing the big words and speaking well. And I went there and tried to translate things and said, you're speaking very old Swedish. <laughs> 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 Nobody speak like that anymore. Like when you, you use a lot of nouns to kind of summarize things instead of mm-hmm. a sentence. And Swedish is a very 
pragmatic, practical, efficient language. It's short sentences, go to the point, not a lot of flowering around like you do in Spanish. And it was actually an identity crisis because I, I felt like I was, I mean, we have 16 tenses in Spanish and in Swedish you have to reduce it to four. And it's like, how am I going to talk about doubts and wishes and desires and all that? You have a whole subjective mode in Spanish where you can express all your uh, heart's uh, problems <laughs> in, a, in a whole mode to speak in Spanish and you don't have that in Swedish. And that was part of, my love for languages, of course, come from my father too, but I understand once you learn the language, of, uh, you don't really understand the culture and understand the, the, what's behind. I'm always fascinated by, I remember we went to Italy a few years ago and on vacation, and I was fascinated by the, because, you know, it comes from Latin, Latin is the root of Spanish. And, you know, I, I could understand some words. I look and say, oh, that's why it comes from there. You understand the meaning when you see in the context of the original place where it's, where it's come from. It was just so fascinating to understand the culture where, where language kind of forms. And um, anyway, I think I digress. I don't know where, I don't know if I'm answering your questions, but I'm going that way. <laughs> yeah, it's 100% right though. Yeah, I mean, you're definitely onto something there in terms of the, the, the richness that comes from understanding another language. It's one of the things that I've often heard other people like yourself talk about, and it sort of allows you to see behind the, the veil, if you like, of, of, a, of another people more effectively than if you don't. And I've always found myself somewhat lacking in that department. I only speak English. English. And uh, definitely when I've traveled, um, it's very, very difficult to to really get a true appreciation and a sense of a place if you don't have a, um, a grasp on the language. I was just curious about Sweden, though. What was it of all the places you could go in the world? You go from Cuba to Sweden. Yeah. What was behind that decision? Well, it was the only door that was open. As simple right. as that. Uh, when you are trying to... Uh, get away from the bad situation. That was the only place that at that time we could go. And we were in a refugee camp for about 11 months and were lucky to be able to stay. Not everybody got permission to stay. So uh, Sweden was a great country. They treat us very well. We love it. Uh, We go back often whenever we can. It was just a little too cold for me. <laughs> yes. A little too cold. Yeah. And I understand that <laughs> the further north you go at some point of the year, it doesn't actually, the sun never sets. So you yeah, have to it's, be a it's, it's cold and it's dark, particularly in the mm. summer. Sorry, in the, in mm. the winter. In the summer is the opposite. And so, but I loved it. And it, once I was able to really get into the language, you start understanding the culture and start appreciating the differences. No, no country is perfect. No culture is perfect. You start get, everything gets relative. You realize how much is man-made, and you don't have to take it at um, you know so personal. And many times it's just the culture how they it evolves. But understanding that really opens your mind, makes you more flexible. Really appreciates the core of human beings. Human beings are the same everywhere. Just the culture allows you to express you in different ways, but at the core, we all want the same thing. We want to be loved. We want to be appreciated. We want to be respected. We want to feel that we matter. And different cultures value certain things, so they allow you to express more one thing or the other. So if you go deeper, you will find that 
we're all the same everywhere. Well, this actually, this is an interesting segue, I, I feel. This is something I wanted to come to, in my head at least, much later in our conversation. But you've just said something there that's quite powerful, is, and, and, and essentially I'll paraphrase, that we all want the same things, that we aren't as dissimilar from each other as perhaps we sometimes like to be led to believe or do believe or are encouraged to categorize ourselves. And I understand, and I think I mentioned in your introduction, that um, you are a founding member of the Multicultural Insights Collective. Mm -hmm. And as part of your work there, I watched a talk that you gave about surveys and how surveys capture race in particular the survey you were listening you were talking about there was the u.s census and just over time how that has evolved mm -hmm. just to give some people some context um, for this before i do ask you the question so the first census in the u.s was in 1790 and just this is quite shocking but this really struck me actually there were three race categories at that time white free persons other free persons and slaves I have so many questions that I could ask you about this particular uh, particular topic, but the one that I really did want to ask you here is why do we care so much about and continue to categorize race? Well, that's a question that has a lot of implications depending how you answer it. I think right now there are two school of thoughts. One, and you can see in the extremes are France that doesn't categorize anything. They want to classify people and here where we try to classify everybody and each side had his own uh, issues right so the origin of this categorization really comes from the government for the need to count people and make decisions on policy and how to distribute resources essentially that's at the at the core of everything and of course that has political and ideological implications uh, is as you started the census because of the slavery history in this country the color line was like an i mean blacks were not considered people until years later they were property they were treated as objects right and over time they start because of economic needs they start to adding other categories and trying to figure out where how can the country, you know, be organized you know, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a better way? But of course, the so this is this sounds like that you're talking about almost like the information architecture of society. Yeah, 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 exactly. And so, and right now, the the main you could say that they, it's important to keep track of those because it's the the reasoning behind it is. Well, it's like if you don't know the problem, you will not be able to fix it. So if you don't count people, if you don't know where resources are going, you don't know if there is discrimination, you don't know where, where, what, which, which groups are no, you know, benefit or being disregarded or penalized by something. And of course, it has been a, a taxation tool, right? So you have to do the census every 10 years and depending on how the census goes, you kind of apportion uh, resources and the, to go different areas. So that's the, the key issue. So that's why they call it it's a, it's a statistical racist because it comes from the statistical size of things. And you can see the categorization is not cohesive because you have you have color line, black, whites, you have nationality when you start including Hispanics and Asians. 
And so those are kind of mixed. They're not in one because really race is, uh, there's so much variation. It's very hard to um, classify people. There is, a, I was into, when I was reading this book, What is Your Race, which has come as part of the presentation that I made there. After starting with counting free white men and women and slaves, they start adding people with disabilities like deaf and blind and dumb. They call it dumb, idiots and insanes, right? For, for the first few rounds. And in the fifth decennial census, they start, they include the category of mulattoes, which is a mixed race. Right, it was added in 1850. And this was the first time they tried to count multi, multiracial people. We still have issues counting those. But unfortunately, this was out of concern from, a, there was a, a Southern physician, Josiah Knott, that, who was certain that biracial children born from black and white racial mixing would create weak, a weak and infertile race and was prone to diseases and, and compared to pure races and was supported to, you know, the, the medical science of the time didn't help either, right? And so the mulatto category stayed for eight censuses and gave birth to a terrible system of the blood quantum, right? They started evaluating people with certain amount of black blood. And as you start talking about the data was was analyzed and was never confirmed, but that was part, it was served, it served a certain group in society. They wanted to keep power, right? And they have the octal rooms, like that one eighth of a person, one eighth of black. So if you, it, it, they installed the drop down rule. So if you only have like almost a drop of black blood in your, in your body, you're black. And that still keeps still to this day. Uh, one of my jobs here before I went to Match.com, I worked for the company it was 85% African-American. And because I'm mixed race, I'm kind of light skin and I have curly hair. So I have, I have black blood, of course. And they were trying to, the big, the big conversation there is, what are you? They wanted me to put me in the category, you have to be black or white, you cannot be in the middle. So why? I have to deny one of my parents. <laughs> I'm mixed race. And it is. And then I realized after being there, they're wonderful people. It's just a protective attitude and approach because you are attacked all the time. You still see here, you know, you know what's, what happened in the 2020 with George Floyd murder and all that. The, the racism is still here. And so if you don't count that, if you don't try to put people in a particular bucket in a way, those problems that could be happening, you will not see them because you become colorblind. And colorblindness has been is excused, particularly for for um, a lot in the white majority to say, well, we're no racist. But if you don't acknowledge that somebody is discriminated because of the color line, then you are really being racist. Assuming that everybody starts at the same point, that's the concept of equity versus equality. You, you know, we can we aspire to everybody being equal, but the fact is that certain groups are starting at a lower point and a lower disadvantage. And that's why that categorization is important. At the same time, it's really hard. It's become harder and harder because race has a strong element of self-identification. You can feel that you are one or the other group. And it's becoming harder. The color line doesn't, fit anymore because you know i mean i'm pretty i'm pretty light so, so for some people who are who are kind of colorblind they don't know not used to the shades 
in, in the black community, they will think I'm black, I'm white. Black people will immediately identify me and say, you are not, you are mixed. And that's fine. And so, but I really don't belong to anywhere, particularly after living in other countries and seeing the variety of people all over the world, there's no point for me to try to classify myself anywhere. But I recognize, because I also lived discrimination and racism when I was in Cuba. I mean, I always was like, they look at my hair and say, well, it's not that bad. It's not bad hair. Or you're not that dark. So there is a tone there saying that something wrong with you. <laughs> you know, you know. You're caught between these two absolutes almost, like people that count themselves as one or, or the other because it, to them at least it sounds it's more clear cut. Yeah, it's easier. It's easier to navigate the world that way. The roles have been established for a long time. And uh, of course it serves certain groups, it protects other groups. And so it is um, those categories actually went away. They took out the mulatto category and now and make the question multiple choice. So you can now be to kind of capture, it's a little more realistic to capture. It was in the census of the 200, 2000 census. Before you can only select one. Now you can select more than one. Now they went another step in the last census in 2020, asking for origin. So what they're trying to go is to go beyond because they never ask for the Asian category and the Hispanics, which is a different story, but they, they, you can select the country you're coming from. But for the black and whites, never ask, where are your, your roots, where are your ancestry? And now they start asking that. So they're trying to, instead of going by the color line, trying to kind of figure out what parts of what you identify with, with certain your ancestry. And it's, it's still very weird categorization, but it's trying to get a gate sense for where problems are. And you can see that this was initially a system to oppress and segregate and separate and deport a lot of people. You know, when we had the big immigration from Asia, from Chinese people that came to build the railroads. At one point, they went the Meow, and so they need to count them. That's why the Chinese became part of the census, right? And, but in the 60s, this category starts start being used for good in a way, just to try and to realize like there is a lot of discrimination and inequality, and these are the numbers. And we still have that today, which now are in a different phase now with a little backlash with you know, affirmative action, which is the, those rules that have been taken to you know, try to equalize and give opportunities to groups that normally don't. And, but of course, the moment you start favoring one group, the other groups get feel excluded. And now there is a, at least in the U.S., there is a lot of discussion around that, the, you know, why fragility and the discussions about the origins, the systemic racisms there is in many institutions in the system. So this, in our research, in market research, which we normally, because we know that it's not about necessarily the category, but all the the cultural. Because being black here is not as being black in Africa. Being black here has connotations, cultural connotations, historical connotations, and people behave in certain ways and buy certain things and use certain products. And so, the demographics in that way gives you a sense for an orientation for what can what needs those groups are, what products they could be for them. So we always ask those demo questions in, in when we do 
market research are the qual on qual, even if a screener we know that has uh, an impact. And so just we, we want to be more inclusive. And the question is, how do we ask that now more and more, right? And it gets complicated because when you try to figure out, for example, I have done a lot of work in the Hispanic community. What is, what is Hispanic? How do you identify with it? And you have to take into account generational because after the fourth generation, many don't even remember they had Hispanic ancestry many times. They feel like, you know, I'm just American. And because they have, and so did they, did they get educated here? So my son was born here. He probably feels more American than, than Cuban, even if he's like the second generation, but he goes to school here. So the years of education really helped to kind of build that identity. And so it gets a little complicated. So when we did that presentation was about we need to really, because our industry industry is not as inclusive as we want it to be. And it has to do with diversity in the research teams, diversity in the sample sources, diversity in the way we ask questions. And to be able to capture that, it requires a lot of reorganization and restructuring of the industry. There is a lot of discussion about that. In, from the insights association trying to move people to, but it's, there is an economic element to it too, you know, cost money to reach out those diverse groups. You want to do research for Hispanics, they, are, they cost money. If you want to get a big sample of black Americans, it costs money. And so you have to find the two ends that are willing to, the clients and the providers that want willing to invest in that type of resources to be able to be inclusive. And so we, we started to talk about at least the questions about gender and about race, because there's a lot of discussion of that in the, in the, in the public realm. Well, let's come briefly to the, the topic of gender. And I know that we both know Dr. Sam Ladner. We were talking before we hit record about um, a conversation that we'd, we'd had with Sam separately. Now, I interviewed Sam a few months back. And as you know, she's a sociologist. And she suggested to me in our conversation that the variation amongst gender in terms of behavior and opinion is greater than the variation across genders. And I, I assume, and this is a big assumption, that that may be the case with race also. Now, I don't have any evidence to support that and totally happy to, 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 to be wrong there. So why do market researchers care about collecting things like gender identity and sexual orientation if those variations uh, within the genders are actually greater than the, the than the variations across the genders. You know, how does knowing someone's sexual orientation help a business to make a, a better business decision or a designer to create a better experience? Well, I think it depends on the product category. Sometimes those questions are asked routinely without necessarily having an impact on what the business do. In market research, we are interest. We are about making big decisions, business decisions that affect large groups of people. So we are about looking for patterns. It doesn't matter if you do qual or qual, you're looking for patterns, right? And we know for certain product categories, the gender has, I mean, they are, literally there are some categories that are only used by women and only used by men, right? Sanitary pads are for women, usually, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? But excluding bio- biological differences, is that more of a result of social conditioning and the gender roles in which we have been 
conditioned or encouraged to adopt and less so about our our biological difference well i mean there's always been those two elements are hard to separate because historically and culturally we know they are not justified biologically but they are attached to genders and those kind of acquired norms that people adopt internalize and they think that you know we as a woman or as a man i should be behaving a certain way or using certain products like i do for example a lot of work in the hair category i love hair products always finding the right ones still not and you can see clear differences in how women and men have been socialized in using certain uh, personal care products right women can have a long list of products that they use and we women are a couple or two that's it i just need to be clean and smell fresh and now i need to kind of get a little but it depends also there is an intersectionality with race so women or men and men african-american men and women the relationship to the hair is very special and it requires a different type of treatment so you kind of have that there so you don't find you don't you find the same difference you will find between men and women but when you start comparing races there's some a little some highlight by race and so it depends on the category and the the cultural norms they have they have been um, passed and a part of the culture and so you always collect that information to see if there is something there if there is something lurking that could find give you a sense for is there is there something that will be a driver to behave in a certain way or use a particular type of product in a particular way sometimes that's why for example in many many a long time ago we don't do a lot of market segmentations based on demographics we know the demographics really don't separate a lot of people so you you find most of the market segments for any product, mostly based on attitudes and needs and um, other other softer kind of uh, variables, attitudes, core values. Do those attitudes, those characteristics that aren't demographic-based, do they transcend race and gender? It depends on the generation, right? And so you, that's why you do a lot more on the age side. You find more differences by age than by those, and you can find that intersectionality. The study that we did on the, the late study that we did with the Multicultural Insights Collective, we would we actually were discussing the, the subject of diversity. And just because a lot of brands start talking about support of diversity, but they were saying one thing, doing something else. There's a lot of inconsistencies. And we start with thinking just about the different race groups and they quickly saw the intersection between age and race. Gender, no differences there. The age and race had a big impact on how people saw the topic and approach it and act about it. And it was willing to support one idea or the other. And so you kind of have to find for each category, what are the, how those variables interact? Because nobody is one thing or the other. I'm not only a woman, but I also have a certain age. I have certain, and so that's going to have to do with the times I'm living, the things I'm exposing to, the region I'm in. I am, it's much more complex. So when we do those type of studies, we try to collect as much as possible and explore 
which of those variables could be having an impact on the decision, on the perception, on the usage that the people are doing. But sometimes gender have nothing to do. Sometimes it does. It depends on the category. So doing those type of generalization is, is difficult and dangerous because then you get into stereotyping that it doesn't really help anybody and uh, just kind of accentuate some cultural wars out there. So I, I try to be open to the idea that we can collect data. It may or may not tell us there is something in there, but it, it could be. It could be something. But if we don't collect it, we won't yes, know. Yes, that's the other thing. It's like if you don't, yeah. it's like you don't know, you miss it. It, it might be something that has to do with gender, if it in particular. Like now with the, for example, you have to take into account the the social events that's happening, right? And so it, after the explosion of the Me Too movement, gender has become a much more predominant topic of discussion and how that impacts product development, things that have been done, they are done with just one gender when the, it really doesn't matter. Like when you go to a conference and you have those, one of those uh, microphones, you know, the the mobile, the, the remote. Oh, the lapel ones. Yeah. So, yeah the yeah, lapel yeah. ones, yeah. right? If you look at how they are designed, the packs, they are designed for people wearing pants. They're not designed for women with a dress. There's no way to mm-hmm. clip them anywhere. To clip it right? on. <laughs> yeah. you know, and so yeah. it's kind of funny because you, re- you start realizing where the biases are, where there shouldn't be any bias, right? And so that's important to kind of capture that. And whenever you do product research and use research, it's important to have that. I know there's a, a trend out there in LinkedIn saying you shouldn't care about demographics when you do a UX. It's like, yeah, <laughs> you're going to be missing a lot and you're going to be also discriminating a lot when you develop products because you don't know what you're getting. You might be just getting a bunch of people in one group and not reflect the rest. And so it, all those uh, variables give you a little piece of the context in which people behave and the attitudes they have. Michelle, you're someone who's not afraid to call a spade a spade. And you've said, and I'll quote you now, there are a lot of fragile egos and hubris and plain incompetence in many C-suites that refuse to use evidence-based insights to make decisions related to strategy, the organization, the operations, and their own leadership. Now, As a founding member of the Multicultural Insights Collective, you've also highlighted the typical lack of diversity that exists in C-suites and on boards. How is this homogeneity affecting the types of products and services that get made? You know, just like we've been talking there about lapel mics not being designed for women. How does it affect the type of products and services that get made? And what do we miss out on? What do we, as in the population at large, society, what do we miss out on as a result? I think we miss a lot. And we think sometimes that because you're in a business setting, you're going to be logical and rational and you're not going to be biased. We forget that those people are those are people. They are human. They have their own biases. They bring it to work. They don't know they're bringing it to work. And you're missing looking at the same problem from a different perspective and maybe finding new opportunities, particularly new opportunities for growth. I was in a project with a client also in the hair category, and the group of those are scientists, 
product scientists, not market researchers, but the ones that are kind of do the formulations and create the actual product, all European, all white women. And they were trying to study the diverse techniques here, Hispanic women and African-American. It was a very hard discussion to admit that the problems that we were we think we're telling them they needed to consider, they needed to be included in the study because that's not something that they will experience ever. And there were some kind of honest type of discussions to say, but I, that's never happened to me. <laughs> exactly. It's not about you. <laughs> it's about this other team, this other group. And there is not one, you were not your user. Not one black yeah. person in that team. They were smart mm. enough to realize, like, we're probably missing something here. Like, let us bring, bring an agency that is diverse and they don't, they are not like us. And maybe they can tell us. And still, even if we told them, we have to show, we have to create like this uh, presentation showing the same, it was actually a team member, the stages of black hair, when you put chemicals, when you let it natural, when you have products, when you, it's every time it's like a different person showing up with their hair. And they were so amazed and surprised. And still there was a lot of resistance to accept that that was the reality because that's not what they, as you know, individuals, people, you know, we are very bad at, at generalizing beyond our own personal experience. And so they were always the point of reference was me, my hair, what I do, how I do it. And it was still... Uh, even the wording, they are European, they are, they use different words there to talk about hair than we, they use here. And even the words that we were trying to say, how people describe the hair, they would not accept it, that we don't say uh, hair shape, we say hair texture. That's how when you talk to an African-American woman, you say hair texture, when you're talking about curly hair or and there are different, like, eight categories of curly hair. I had, like, three in my own head. And so it was so foreign to them. And it was a lot of resistance and openness. And that meant that whatever they were trying to, when we come back with the data, they were always trying to put it back to the standards. That They had a standard that has been, it's very white-driven hair, straight hair standard. And all the differences would disappear, Right. And so now you are in the, you're going to be in the producing a product that is not for, this, for the group that you study, it's for the white majority, right? So you, you're missing a big opportunity there to really reach these groups. And that's why you have a big explosion of Black-owned brands in these categories because they know, they understand their audience, they know they have been there. So, there is, so why I always advocate is you have to have a diverse group so people can come and keep you in check with your biases. We all, you are not, we all are susceptible to biases. That's how our brain functions. We don't know everything. Uh, I love the fact that I, I bring my perspective, but I always, I have to be also vigilant, listening to others to say, well, that's not my experience. And because we are researchers to say, okay, I know this is a sample of one. We need, to go, we need to go beyond and try to see if there is really a pattern there. That's the key of research. But you miss a lot of opportunities. And there's also a lot of misconceptions and ignorance about this group. I mean, Hispanics have a big purchasing power and people think they don't have money to buy stuff. They buy a lot of stuff. When you go in the cosmetic uh, category, 
they're willing to pay a lot of money if it's a good product, right? And so the ignorance is that, but that comes from not having people in the executive management and the product management kind of catching those biases because you are building for the people that you know and the people you know if you if you have a white team of men they're going to come up with things that have nothing to do with uh, our needs of even white women and so you you're going to have to be humble and be aware that you don't you probably do not know a lot of things like like the ng guys always have that little mantra you're not the user and we all have that i mean we know uh that that's not the case but it's very hard with someone, it's kind of have the curse of knowledge. And that comes with, you know, about experience, you think you know everything, you have to be humble and you have to be open and, and let other perspective come in, even if you don't agree, but to have a conversation to, to find that middle ground, right? And so that's, that's part of the diversity of perspective is more important than anything. That comes from the backgrounds of different people from background, not just race, age, and, and uh, of course, gender and disabilities and uh, different socioeconomic backgrounds, even people in the same, the different races, but if they are in a lower socioeconomic background, they probably have more things in common than someone that is in the higher socioeconomic race. So you, that diversity is important at all levels. So you want to create inclusive products, both digital and physical, doesn't have to be. For me, products are, regardless of the medium, that's what people are going to be using and buying and incorporating their lives. You touched on something earlier on where you suggested that people's attitudes and preferences are somewhat shaped by the time at which they arrived on this earth and that the differences amongst age can be greater in magnitude than the differences, say, amongst amongst genders, for example, or amongst races. It seems like, and maybe I'm I'm seeing something that's not here, but it seems like there might be greater hope for more diversity at the C-suite level and in boardrooms and our organizations uh, with the passing of time as those that's attitudes change and people are, yeah, <laughs> that's my right? Hope. So, so, so we just we just have to wait for a few a, a I might few not see it alive, but, uh, you know, my hope, I tell my son yeah. <laughs> that you are, you, are, you are the future. I hope that you can make things changing here. Uh, as you see how things now we are in a, a period of backlash here in the US and with a lot of things trying to go backwards with abortion rights and now with the transgender and uh, you know, the politicians, we are in Texas, so it's kind of leading the, the nation in, in all those stuff. And I, I, I was telling him that we were talking the other night, the other night about that. And so I, I hope that your generation can do something about this because I don't know. I mean, this is not good for you. It's going to be bad. I'm, a, I am closer to the, <laughs> to the, to the end of the road. But you are, you are, you are starting now, <laughs> and so it is on you to be able to, to change things. And so it's, it's true that the newest generation is more diverse there less restricted, they're bounded, they're less bounded by, by those categorizations, you know, the, 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 con- the concept of gender fluidity is not new. It's actually, there's a book called like that, gender fluidity. And uh, well, it's probably just more of a recognition, recognition of reality. Yeah. As opposed to yeah. anything else. And there's a number of guests, including Peter Morville and Lisa Marie Marquis, who I've spoken about the information architecture of gender, if you like, and uh, the move away from categorization to uh, spectrums yeah. 
um, and how we're also looking at um, the different operating systems that we have as humans in terms of our brains and you know, sort of rise in appreciation of neurodiversity. You know, these things have always been part of the human experience and how how we have lived. Uh, we just have chosen, depending on whether we're in a conservative or a more yeah. liberal leaning phase of uh, how we govern our culture, to acknowledge them or not to acknowledge them and to try and other the people and suppress uh, reality um, in a way that for some reason makes some people feel really good about themselves by doing so, but just in terms of the effect it has on others, it robs them of their humanity. And I, I do, like you, I hold hope that um, that our generation and the generations to come will see this for what it is and will continue to protect and uphold the ideals of allowing people to live life in the way in which they choose, which is closely related to our system of government in the West, which is democracy. And I think we're seeing at the moment um, with particular countries around the world, in particular in the Ukraine, in Ukraine, sorry, at the moment, uh, just what's mm -hmm. at stake if we capitulate to some of our darker impulses. And it's really important that we don't. It is, it is. And, and it is, uh, I mean, I, I flew from a dictatorial <laughs> regime and uh, it, it feels, it feels scary when, when people don't, people have never lived that, don't realize how dangerous it is to play with those ideas. And when Freedom is not free. Mm -mm and how precious it is, uh, the freedoms that you have uh, in, in the West in many, in, in many countries. But it, I think it's, it's just about many times lack of education. I don't remember who said that, that to be a good citizen, you have to be educated. You need to know history. You need to, to otherwise you forget. You, will, you are bounded to repeat every time the same mistakes if you don't learn from history because that's part of our, our nature. You will counter the same issues every, in every generation. And if you don't know how it's happened, then you might not find a new way of handling that. And so you will, you're bound to repeat the same mistakes. And so education in, in, it doesn't mean that you have to repeat. Um, sometimes people get a little defensive when, we, when I talk about education. It feels like, oh, you're going to be bound by, by the textbook. No, no, it's just... You, Get the foundation, and from there, you're, able, you're freer to improve, to change. But you know where you are improving and changing. No, not starting from a scratch and trying to reinvent the wheel, right? And so just get to the wheel that is now and try to be a little better. But you got the baseline. Well, let, let's talk about this in the context of market research and UX research. Let's take our discussion there, you've suggested that market researchers have been disconnected from the product experience and they've been more focused on marketing, defining and segmenting markets and those sorts of problems. And that when they come to the product experience, it's very much been on the surface, but that that is starting to change and the market research field is becoming more interested in product experience and those qualitative aspects and methods. But you've also suggested that this has been an area, uh, I suppose you're calling it the UX research field, right? This is what it's known as. This area has been more dominated or monopolized by designers. And in your own words, you've said, and I'll quote you again now, unfortunately, since UX designers and developers don't really have the training and research, 
and the and the quality of user research, despite it being essential for UX, has suffered greatly and is sometimes totally absent. So this is going to what you were speaking about there about knowing what that foundation is, knowing the baseline. You know, what are some of the major mistakes that you see UX designers and UX researchers making when it comes to running research? Before I get to I, before I get to that, I just wanted to clarify something. Market research is a multidisciplinary uh, area of study, and there are a lot of specialties in it. And so sometimes you might end up in a company that specializes and does a certain type of research. It doesn't that doesn't mean that all market research is available. So market research has always always product research has always been part of market research since the beginning because you know. Product is one of the pillars of marketing. Without product, there's nothing to market. So you have to understand. And product use, product testing, all that, always been part of what we call interactions is that product use. we always done that type of research, particularly for certain product categories. So if you end up working at, at Procter & Gamble, you know, the big CPG companies, they are the masters in this type of research. They do a lot of ethnography research and a lot of qual and quant, everything to try to understand how people use products. And it starts from the concept where we try to figure out is this idea, is there is any market for that idea to the actual product use and the interaction. What happens is that when, you, when the internet came and the digital technologies exploded, that area was kind of relegated to IT, uh, to software development, and there was not a clear understanding that this is actually a product that needed to go through a similar process. And it's, it's, it's like it lived in a different area like many companies in production and operation, and it was not necessarily connected to marketing, even if people needed to market those, right? And so I think it, it evolved in that at the end when the waterfall uh, method was kind of the dominant way of producing things, they realized like, oh, we produced this thing and now people don't like it or having this problem, they realized, okay, we have to go and kind of shorten the periods in which you get feedback about the product to be able to improve it. And because in many companies, there was not necessarily a connection. This, these companies didn't do necessarily the, the traditional product research that was used in the product, in the physical world, the companies that do that. I don't think they knew that we were doing already this type of research with physical products. And they realized, this, oh, this is probably something new and we need to now reinvent it and you have to adapt it to... to and they came up with similar techniques in a way which are right now, it's a very immature level. It's very basic stuff. And when, and of course, it comes from also the human factor design area, the ergonomics, that's kind of the closest it get to trying to understand the interaction interfaces and all. But it was no kind of, nobody kind of click on that this is the same thing. It's just in a different medium, right, in the digital uh, work. And so now, uh, of course, that was kind of an open field. You have the designers, the developers, they have, they're now forced to do, uh, to get some type of feedback from users to be able to continue their work. And market researchers have been kind of, because at the same time, a lot of new terminology has been created by that group 
many market researchers have not seen necessarily a connection. So I get that question all the time, but how different is it? What is mm. the difference? Well, how different is it? Yeah, what is the difference? <laughs> it's, not, it's not a lot of difference. It's just the same techniques adapted to the digital medium, really. Because what has been adapted, if you see, what are, what are the most common techniques you use in UX research? User, user interviews, or they call it stakeholders interviews, or the usability testing is the most kind of classical, traditional that has been from the beginning. All of those three are variations of what we call in-depth interviews. It's just they have some specificities. User interviews, stakeholder interviews, they are relabeled based on the audience that you're interviewing. But that doesn't change the nature of the interview. Usability testing, you are doing a task-based scenario type of interview. That's a, that I would say it's a type of question that you use in the interview. You're trying to, but all of them are uh, based on probing. You have someone there trying to probe and dig deeper and trying to figure out what's happening in in the in the user's mind, right? And if you do remote tweet testing and card sorting and all of that, all of those are really variations of survey questions. They are set up in a survey tool, although nobody want to talk it, call it like that. Those are survey questions. If, if you have, <laughs> don't tell anyone. <laughs> if you have one of the big survey tools that use that are using market research, you will have car sorting in there, and you will have tree testing is a little more specific. But those are all based on surprise. You know what that called? Is survey methodology. And there are master programs in survey methodology because it's really hard, the art and science of asking questions. And, the, and there are variations. Is it the written format where you do actual written surveys, either in, on paper or online, or is the oral version, which is phone surveys or interviews, right? So they all come from the same root. It's just we start adding, making adaptations to the medium and the goals of the study. And the interesting piece, um, and that's, the, I think, one of the key mistakes that the, the UXers do is not looking at adjacent disciplines where a lot of work has been done, a lot of standards has been established, and where you can learn what works, what doesn't work, and then from there adapt. When you go there and, and, and review all the techniques, that's what, I ha- that's what happened with me because when I start, when I went to match, it's the first was my first time you know, in, in touch with a digital digital world because match.com is that, you know. Just so people have some context, that was back in, I believe, 2005. Yeah, yeah. So you've had, you've had, you know, at, at least 17 yeah, years. Yeah, and UX, UX didn't, was not a term yet. Along, yeah, yeah. <laughs> alongside market yeah. research. And so when yeah. I got there, I we realized, okay, it's the same thing in terms of, okay, it's a product that we need to market and we need to develop and we need to price and we need to position. And there is a group that was very much into the product development, the features that needed to be included, but they has to be connected to what price are we going to put on it and how are we going to position that in markets. So all of that has to be coordinated. So we work in a little group we just did research. UX was not a term, but we had a usability lab in house. You know, that was a way of making it cheaper and faster that way. But we we had our own in our team. There was someone who specialized in that type of interviews. 
others did more of the traditional, but everybody knew what was happening. You know, everybody was connected to a particular goal, business goal that needed to be, you know, coordinated because there's no point of developing a product that marketing cannot talk about it. There's no part, there's no point of pricing something that costs much more than what it takes to develop. So all of that has to work together, right? And it doesn't matter that it's digital or that it's physical. It's the same thing. And what happened many times in in the one big thing that I see in, in the UX field that I know there's not a lot of discussion about discovery research. We need to go out there and and figure out if there is a need. And that's why jobs to be done, interviews have become, that's another version for another type of, it's just an in-depth interviews trying to go deeper into the need, needs of the users, right? Trying to understand. That's what we do in exploratory research and qualitative research all the time, whenever there is a product idea, or even when there is not a product idea, we go out there to see if there are any needs are met in the market. Where can we go and find something that we can grow and develop? I have clients that come to me year after year. Whenever, whenever they go to a new company, they start saying, we need a market segmentation here because we need to define the strategy of the company. Where do we go? The first thing I do is to do usually qualitative research because I, I don't know where to go. And so we need to explore what are the needs in that category. And from there, we go and develop the rest of the study, right? And so you first have to define if there is a need in the market that sometimes is missing. So many times UX researchers come afterwards and there is already a prototype, there is an idea, go and test it, validate to see if there are features that need to be done, how they work and all that. And you end up developing something that probably nobody cares about. I have seen it <laughs> in many tools. And so that's one of the pieces is not having this holistic view of the product development and connected to marketing. So when we do- Is that the fault necessarily of the discipline of UX research though, or is it more indicative of the overriding presiding culture of how business and how products and services in the digital space get created? I mean, it's not necessarily even in the digital, there's a lot of companies with physical products that don't do the research. There's somebody mm. in the group say, my mom has this problem and I think she needs this and that's the <laughs> that's that's expensive way to learn. And we need to go and, and that's that's where a lot of hubris comes into it. It's like, I know, it's, I feel it in my gut. And they go away and try to do this. Have you heard about the, the I think it's going to come in some type of a textbook soon, the marketing, uh, the example of Quibi, you know, the streamlining, streamlining service was supposed to be mobile only video consumption, short videos. So there's a lot of restrictions have to be in your phone, mobile, short. Con and so in the, in, the, in the market where you have Netflix, you have Hulu, you have tons, YouTube, a lot of competition, they end up getting investment about like a billion dollar investment. Nobody had done research about if there was a need for that service in the market. Six months after the launch, I have to close. Are you suggesting that belief is not enough? You have to, you have to first, and this were people who are, uh, who were known in the industry, who had a lot of backup and still nobody occurs. It doesn't, it didn't occur to them that we probably need to figure out if there is a need in the market. Probably there was a lot of hubris in that board meetings saying, we know 
because there is this uh, trend towards streaming. And, but it's just, they have so many restrictions in the needs that for, for, it was very targeted to a very tiny, probably segment in the, in the market. And that's why I say many times when people talk about, for example, personas, that's another uh, area where I, I have um, get trepidations with people talk about that, the personas, which are created many times without any data. It's just assumptions done internally, maybe from salespeople, from marketing people, but not necessarily data. Or maybe they do a couple of, they do a few interviews and they think they have they know, the sense of what are the segments. Personas is just market profiles, profiling of segments. When you do a segmentation, you figure out what, what the pies are, and then you look at all the variables you included in the study and do a profiling and give you a sense for And that includes demographics, psychographics, product use. It's not just one thing. It's a tons of things that create this. The persona is this total profile of the segment, right? And the question is, when you do that without data, the question is, how do you figure out what persona should, be you, should you be focusing on? You don't know the magnitude of the segment. It might be a pretty cool segment, but very tiny that is not worth going after. It's going to cost a lot of money. It's going to be difficult to develop for that product, for that segment, right? And so you have to be mindful of when you do those type of, use this type of research methods, what is really what you get. What happened when I have those statements about the quality of the research, it's about finding the right method, uh, the method that is a good fit for the purpose, right? Fit for purpose research. What type of decisions are you making? Start there. You have to start kind of at the end, envisioning the end. I'm going to make this decision. This is the type of data I need to make that decision. And from there, you develop whatever the research design is to support that. Don't come and say, we want to do usability or we want to do user interviews or, because that's, that's what you know what to do. It doesn't necessarily mean that is the best method to gather that information to be able to make those decisions. So that's why you have to always tie it back to the actions, to the business outcomes that the, your stakeholders are going to make. Those pieces, I know there is a lot of, we want to democratize research, we want everybody to participate. That's great. Uh, <laughs> the reality is, the reality is that many of the business stakeholders, they have to be, they don't have the time or the desire to get into the nitty gritty of the result of, of the research. They want to help me. What is that I need to tell me what is it I need to do? And, and if I, I need to feel confident that you know that that's substantiated by the research that you did. So that's why it means I have to trust you that you're a good researcher, that you know what you're doing. And that's why sometimes uh, research, you have to also be prepared. Because when you come back to the board and to the C-suite and you present your results and people don't like to hear because they already have their preconceived ideas of where it should go, they, there is a lot of internal agendas in there. The first thing that's going to be attacked is going to be the methodology. You're going to question your methods, the sample, the criteria, everything. So if you are not prepared, if you don't know what you're doing, it's going to be a very hard sell for the value of the research that you did. And I have been in many of those meetings where, where people just attack you because they don't want to hear the results. And you have to understand where they're coming from. What are the issues? What is, it, what is the barrier? What is that? What are the resistance this? 
And, and that's why also I'm very, very clear when I talk to clients about caveats. So when someone tells me, we want to do a usability testing, okay, what is it you're trying to do? That's the first question. Don't talk to me about usability testing. Tell me what is the business problem. Okay, this is the business problem. We want to do usability. Okay, so if you do usability and this is your business problem, these are the pros and the cons, and this is what we're able to deliver. You want more than that? That's not going to be with usability testing, or that's exactly what you need. And so you have to have that foundation to be able to defend the value of the research, because that's the, I'm not saying go there and do a, a lecture survey or usability methodology. People don't care about that. You put that in the appendix. If someone is interested, they can go to appendix. But if they ask, you better be prepared. You better know what you're doing. And you, be, be, to, you have to be able to defend that. I had a, uh, someone call me once and they had, they wanted to do an evaluation of advertising campaign here in the area. And, but they came and said, we want to do one focus group. At least you do, you do at least two focus groups in general. But without getting into that, I said, what is it you need it for? No, we just did this campaign. We want to, we want to show metrics <laughs> that, the, that the campaign worked. I said, I'm sorry, I cannot do that. And so sometimes I lose business because they want to do things that I cannot come back and defend. So my reputation is on the line. <laughs> I cannot, with good conscience. And I have said that. Company, companies come and say, we want to do this and that. And they say, well, let's, let's go through the process and see if that at the end is going to give you the answer that you want. If it's not, we can do something else. Or if you still want to do that, you can go to someone else because I, I feel it in my bones when it's not a right, the right fit. And that's the key in quality research. It's not that you have to be perfect or textbook uh, about a particular method. It's that you'll find the right one to give you the type of data that you need. And sometimes it's not just one. You need sometimes a constellation of things to kind of present different things in different perspectives. So many times I, I propose qual and quant because they give you different different um, flavors of the data. But if you go to a C-suite and you want to say, you have to invest this thousand dollars of dollars in this product, and what? how do you know that? Well, we did a one usability testing with five people. It's going to be a hard sell because we know just, even if you're not a researcher, you get the sense that in five people, it's going to be very hard to capture the diversity of your market segment to be able to make a generalization and, and project this big investment to the whole population of your users or potential users, right? So that's kind of a basic logic, even if you don't want to get into statistics. But uh, it doesn't mean that you can come back with bad quantitative data. There's a tons of bad quantitative data, surveys and research there. I'm not defending, not saying that that is better than the other. There is a lot of bad designs with quant data too. What I'm saying is that you kind of have to figure out first the problem and then decide what's the best method. And once you do that, that's your first step to quality and to be able to really defend and add value and, and know your limitations. And But if you, if you think that you feel that the limitation is going to be a threat to your job because when you're a user researcher, you're tasked with what? Doing usability testing a user. And that's the only thing that you know how to do. And you don't even think to bring a partner that can help you or you don't have this budget. 
because nobody's thinking about that either. It's going to be very hard to not try to push it <laughs> for everything that you do. And what happens over time is that erodes the value of the research because you're going to be questioned all the time. That happened on the quant side for market researchers in many companies too. Everything they want to do was surveys. Of course, surveys have a bad rap. Writing good surveys is really hard. It's a lot of work. And people don't realize it's not just about the questions. It's about all the statistical questions that you have to all the potential errors and all the steps in the process you have to consider to write a good survey and do the analysis. And when you not do, when you try to do that for everything, or you think the tool is going to do it, because that's the other thing, driven by tools. Oh, I have survey monkey. I was I was in a in a in a proposal once, and we were discussing the team, and they were asking questions in the course, and I said, but isn't it just we were talking about survey? Isn't it just copy and paste in survey monkey? <laughs> I have to breathe. Deeply, <laughs> it's not. The tool is not going to do it for you. The tool is going to facilitate it. It's not going to do it for you. You still need a human there who knows what they're doing. That's the part of the quality that if you don't have the foundation, that's what I'm always saying. Get the foundation. And then after that, feel free to change and break rules and you know innovate. But without that, just just, you know, trying to to invent it where we we say in Cuba uh, in Cuba warm water yeah <laughs> Michaela this is reminding me of a conversation I had with Lou Rosenfeld of oh, probably over a year ago now and he'd been trying to connect the dots between data scientists and UX researchers mm -hmm. and in his view it's better if these two groups were, were able to integrate their perspectives and that both of the disciplines would benefit from that and he used and he uses this quite often actually uh, use this Buddhist parable which is the blind men and the elephant just to illustrate the risk and the opportunity that exists of either collaborating or not collaborating to try and understand a greater whole. And um, I'm not sure if people are familiar with that parable, but in, in effect, it was several blind men standing around an elephant, touching different yeah. parts of the elephant, and then trying to describe it to the other blind men that were doing the same. Mm -hmm. And um, and the others refused to accept some of the perspectives at, at, at certain points, and the whole thing fell apart. They were unable to see the, the whole because they weren't able to integrate their perspectives. Mm -hmm. So what should the collaboration between UX research and market research, if we want to distinguish them as such, what should that ideally look like? And how should practitioners in those different areas work together to integrate their perspectives so that we can be more effective in solving business problems? I think the first thing is to understand the areas in which they are kind of predominantly doing the type of work that they're doing. We know that UX right now, although it started trying to be bigger than there is, if you look at the definitions that NNG had, uh, it's the total experience, it's the attitudes to develop over multiple interactions. The fact is that right now, it, a lot of UX research is focused on micro interactions at the product level uh, that may or may not be have a clear connection to a strategic goal or a business outcome. Some teams don't know that. They just are in the trenches they are working on, okay? And so the market researchers on the other side, when there is a group like that, sometimes there are no groups like that, particularly in tech companies, they are might be doing, might be at the high, a little higher level, uh, trying to maybe testing concepts and, and doing more of the brand 
tracking and positioning the work and not necessarily, uh, not always capturing the impact of the interactions on those elements. And when I do positioning research, for example, when we do concept testing on there, there, there are different types of concepts, but one that I love because it's usually tend to yield a lot of insights is depositioning, which is the positioning is about the combination of the benefits and the features. So you position on the benefits. What does the product does for me, right? That's the jobs to be done essence. This product saves me time, saves me money, makes me feel a particular way. That's the functional or emotional benefits. The question is, would I believe you? If I believe you, what is it you giving to support that claim? And so that's where the product features come in and say, well, when I have this and this and this, and I can interact with those features, I feel that particular way. So I can, I give you the, the basic support to make that claim. You can have a tons of features, a huge backlog, but only two or three are the ones that really, you know, really get users going. And those are the ones that go to marketing, they go to the messaging, that you show on the website, on the app that you talk about, that's what people remember. All of that, as you can see, they are coordinated, right? And so those two groups, really, the first step, I would say, have lunch, talk to each other, uh, find a way of exchange at least ideas of what is each group is doing and trying to find the common ground, where the connections. So that should come from the top. The top should say, you guys should be working together. But many times the top doesn't understand that. And so if you are at the bottom or in the, mid, in the, in the, in the middle, you just have to be a more uh, proactive, looking for that type of connection and trying to at least be informed of what's the, what the other group is doing and not feeling frustrated and not feeling that they are robbing you of something because they are doing, they're saying the same thing from a different perspective with a different lens, focusing on a particular area. I mean, you, there's so much research you can do that it's good that you can specialize in certain things, but it has to have some type of connection. And that lack of connection is where, for example, now you have this cohort of people called CX, the customer experience group, uh, which is another labeling, because everybody has to have an X now, group that it really does grounded in customer satisfaction research and business KPIs. That's where the NPS is like the big thing. And many times in company, I have a lot of thoughts about NPS, but I'm not saying that's the best metric, but that's what they, it's used in many companies. They're really addicted to it. But the CX people are trying to kind of go above a little higher and see, okay, how are those all the micro interactions and the different challenges are connected? That's supposed to be part of the marketing function. That's what's supposed to happening. If you have a marketing strategy, you are connecting all the dots. If you have a market research function, that's what is happening in many, in the mature companies that have a market a mature market research function. That's what they do. They connect all the dots. They do research in the different areas and how they, in, in how they impact on the business goal and the business outcomes. And you have to really have that clear. And I know there is res resistance from the UX people to get connected to the business, but again, Without the business, there's no user experience to develop. <laughs> so 
you better hurry up and be aware of, of the business goals and how your literal interaction, your literal usability testing, your literal interview, how is that connected to you, what you are uh, doing? I have some suspicions here, though. I suspect that there is some fear amongst the UX community that they will be subsumed by the business of which marketing generally represents and that there is also a perception that exists out there as it may be around market researchers as well that may be unfair that they live for the spreadsheet that they are not as close to the user or the customer that the UXs are and there's a fear there that the the magic, for lack of a better word, of the craft and that connection with that user will get lost in a sea of spreadsheets and quantitative data. So I yeah. suspect that that might be one thing or a couple of things yeah. there that are driving that resistance to um, be more close to the business. Yeah, and that's a misconception that I always see. You see my LinkedIn post, you will see I was talking about that. Market research is not about quant. It's not about only a spreadsheets some companies they just do that type of research that, that's okay i understand that that's why if you are the only thing that you have seen is that as market research i totally understand your reservations but uh in many companies they also have a group that is dedicated to the qual and other things to the quant and many times they don't necessarily do it in-house because qualitative research is very resource intensive uh, I know now that there is a trend in UX to create research operations to bring in all that work in-house. Uh, over time, that's going to get really expensive. It's going to be a cost center. It's going to it's going to it's going to be hard to justify unless you have a huge volume of research that can justify to that that in-house. But normally, many years ago, we had that too, and companies have evolved to use partners. And so there are companies that do a lot of qual research part of market research, but they use vendors, they use suppliers, they help them because maybe the volume is not as high. And, and there is a lot of specialization in that. If you want to be a good recruiter, there's a lot of things that go into that. Now with data privacy laws and all that, it's getting very complicated and expensive to do that. And so if they think in the market research is only spreadsheet, they're totally have their own idea what market research is. I would say that if they refuse to kind of be part of that, they, at the end, they're going to be losing because the business is going to drive what the business is going to drive. They need, there are two main goals in a business. You have to acquire new customers, retain customers. That's the two things. Otherwise, you're not going to be in business. Even they're non-profit organizations. They need to make money to be able to sustain themselves and justify to their whatever the support they have, that they, they, their function is, is worthwhile, right? And so you still, even for survival, say that you don't want to grow at all. You just want to survive. You still have to at least retain your customers. So there is a business goal in there. And whatever you do, it has to be connected to that. And so if you think you, you're going to be, if you want to keep the craft alive and you want to keep it, as, just make, make your case and how that's worth it to the business. Not try to isolate and trying to separate and trying to create friction and being territorial and thinking that you are the thing. Because if nobody sees the value, you are the first one who's going to go when the crisis comes, right? And so it's a kind of a survival mechanism if they want to really survive. And, and I, I mean, I'm advocating for UX research all the time, but I'm just saying it's not in you being different and unique and with all this new terminology, 
It's about collaboration. That's how you're going to survive. It's in collaboration and how you connect the dots. And you have to connect it to marketing. And you have to connect it to, to the business because without marketing, your product's not going to survive. That's part of it, right? And actually, in the in the Rosenfeld Media, there were there were a couple of presentations the Rosenfeld Media conference from BBC and from Ebrio, how they really they really did a beautiful job talking about the integration of the different functions, the different type of research, how that really was the best way of enhancing the full research function, right? And so try to let go of the UX and market research. Now, really, we don't call them market research anymore. It's about insights. That's why even the association changed their name a few years back. It was called Market Research Association. Now it's called Insights Association because nobody cares about the methods and the tools, which is where UX is now focused on. That's one also the problems with many UX research is too much focus on tools and methods. But it's about the insights they come from that. And a lot of tools now are very, there are very good ones out there with good interfaces for data collection. That's where research operations a lot about data collection. Nobody thinking what happens after that. You know, once you get the data, where's the thinking time to analyze, to synthesize, to, to extract the insights? That's where the value is. And that's within the shorter times, the low budget. Nobody here has time for that. And that's the, the market research industry has that problem too. I'm not talking about UX. It's just because it gets compressed and compressed and compressed. So it's the better, the cheap, the supposedly better, cheaper and faster. It's actually either cheaper and faster, rarely better, because you still need humans there to process. Even now in the era of artificial intelligence, supposedly to process and do things faster. You still need humans there. You still need human capital that can really extract the insights. Nothing still goes better than the human brain trying to connect all the dots, right? And so that's why collaboration, it's important to be able to survive. And yeah. What an important point to end on. I really, really agree and support those perspectives around integrating our perspectives as different disciplines, collaborating with each other, focusing on what's important, which is the business outcome, and letting the labels go when the labels stop serving us and serving the work that we're trying to do. We need to be showing our value to the business, and that's not a bad thing. And I think if we can leave some of that stigma behind, that can only seek to serve us. Michaela, I've really enjoyed our conversation today. It's been expansive. It's gone to d deeper areas than I ever could have fathomed when I first sat down with you today. And I'm so delighted that it has. You're clearly a very considered person and clearly very well educated in your craft and you've thought a lot about the profession. So thank you for so generously sharing your stories and your insights with me today. I really appreciate the opportunity, Brendan. You you were great. Uh, good questions, really. And uh, I like I like these type of conversations with, with people who understand. We don't have to agree, but we have to be open to discuss and exchange ideas and, and see, uh, appreciate the value of of things that will help us advance. 100%. Thank you so much for making time to be on the show. Michelle, if people want to find out more about you, about your company, about your blog, about relevant insights, what's the best way for them to do that? You can find me 
LinkedIn, Michaela Mora, and you can go also to relevantinsights.com. And where it's my blog there, and also I'm on Twitter. I don't tweet as much these times, but I can I can be uh, R Insights. It's got R like letter R Insights. That's my Twitter handle. But that's the three main channels where I can be found. Perfect. Thanks, Michaela. I will make sure that I link to all of those in the show notes. So if you've tuned in, keep your eyes on on those for how to find Michaela. That would be perfect. If you want to hear more great conversations like this with world-class leaders in UX design and product management, don't forget to leave a review on the podcast if you're listening on a platform that makes that possible. Subscribe and also pass this podcast these conversations along to someone else that you think that they would add value to if you want to reach out to me you can find my link to my profile on linkedin and the show notes as well or you can just find me under brendan jarvis um, or uh, head on over to my website which is thespaceinbetween.co.nz that's thespaceinbetween.co.nz and until next time keep being brave <laughs> <laughs>